Hey, before we get into this week's episode of The Culture, just a quick reminder that if you want to stay up to date with the show, you can follow it in your favourite podcast app. Just search for The Culture. All right, let's get into it. Welcome to The Culture, a weekly show from Schwartz Media, where we talk about the latest in the world of pop culture, arts, and entertainment. I'm Osman Faruqi, and today on the show, we're talking about the new and highly controversial Australian film, Nitram. The film is about Martin Bryant, the perpetrator of the Port Arthur massacre 25 years ago, and it tracks his life in the lead-up to that event when he gunned down 35 people. Shortly after lunch on Sunday, 28-year-old Martin Bryant systematically mowed down tourists at Port Arthur. The man believed responsible for Australia's worst mass murder this century is sedated and under police guard in a hospital. Making it harder to accept the carnage is the fact that there is still no motive, no inkling as to why the gunman visited this horror on a quiet Tasmanian community. I mean, yeah, there is a couple of things that happen down here, but you don't ever think it's going to be as bad as this. When the film was first announced, there was pretty swift backlash from politicians and film critics who argued that the story was just too painful and traumatic to tell. Why do we need a movie on this monster? Why? Does it serve any purpose at all? We'll hardly learn anything from it. If, as a nation, many of us have refused to utter his name, especially those in that state who carry enormous mental scars from that period, doesn't that tell everyone that we don't want to go there again? And more importantly, we don't want to feed his thirst to be remembered, which was his intent. The film was directed by Justin Cazell, who is no stranger to interrogating Australian violence. His previous work includes Snowtown and the true history of the Kelly Gang. I spoke to Cazell and Nitram's writer, Sean Grant, about why they made this film and the complexities around telling a story as traumatic as this one. And you can hear that conversation in the second half of this episode. But first, to help me dissect the film itself and explore the question of when and how we should tell these kinds of stories. I'm excited to welcome back to the culture, writer and director Mahmoud Fazal. Mahmoud, thanks for joining the show this week. Thank you for having me, man. It's always a pleasure to be on this incredible podcast. Thank you. That's very (laughs) kind. I'm really keen to dig into some of the bigger questions the film is forcing us to grapple with. But before we get to that, can you talk us through, Nitram, the specific story it tells and how you felt about it? Okay, well, I, I, I love the film. I think it's like the best Australian film of the last decade at least, which is probably why it screened in competition at Cannes and Caleb uh, Landry-Jones took home the Best Actor Award, which is because it's no small feat for Australian cinema. This is fucking huge, right? So the film, Nitram, it's it's the serial killer Martin Bryant story, you know, his life up until the moment he commits the Port Arthur massacre and the heart of the film, Nitram, for me, is that it's this coming-of-age story where the protagonist or antagonist doesn't really come of age. So it's this tragedy, a tragedy about um, 
the events that shape, propel, or disfigure this lonely or alienated person with mental health disability. What's that? What? In your hand. It's my air rifle. Get rid of it. I don't want it here. The story really begins um, with Nitram, Martin backwards, um, this wannabe surfer who lives with his mum, Judy Davis, and dad, Anthony LaPaglia, in suburban Tassie. He's like saving up for this surfboard and he offers to mow the neighbours' lawns and he meets this eccentric Tatslotto heiress called Helen, played by um, Essie Davis. She's the only character in the film that kind of gets him and they form this weird pretend family and literally play dress-ups. Helen, Mum, Dad. Hello. What exactly is going on here? Sorry, I don't know what you mean. He mows your lawn, you buy him a car. He mows it again, he moves in with you. Don't you have your own children? No. I've got a husband. So which is he? A husband or a son? Apart from Essie Davis's character... Only children really understand Martin and there's this wonderful scene um, in the beginning where he's running through the embers of a firework to the applause of these primary school kids. You know, they get him not just because they share his capacity to, to dream but because they haven't yet discerned the boundaries of reality, like what's real and what isn't, what's appropriate and what isn't, what's normal and what isn't. What's wrong? What are you doing? What do you mean? Can't just be letting off fireworks outside of school, Nit Ram. It's not appropriate. And then suddenly when Martin and this heiress plan a trip to LA, of all places, like the mecca of myth-making where you can be whatever you want to be, right? Essie Davis's character Helen suddenly dies because of Martin's childish recklessness. And his world really, at that point, begins to disintegrate because it's, it's sliding into focus. It's something he can't understand, you know, the real world as we know it. What happened? Oh, she died, love. Sorry, mate, just calm down. Calm down. The dream world he shared with Helen falls apart. His father also has this dream, you know, this bucolic dream of owning a B&B that's shattered when they're outbid and someone else owns the property and sends his father into this deep depression and he eventually ends his own life. Both Essie Davis's character, Anthony LaPaglia's character, the girlfriend and the father are now dead. So what does Martin do? He knows he can't step up to be the quote-unquote man of the house and he has these recurring violent outbursts he can't control. So by the end of it, it's kind of easy to say that he sought vengeance against a community that he never felt part of and that always looked down on him as though he was a child or or stupid or something. I think it has it has more to do with this internal conflict. Nitram reacts against society to try and discern what's real from what's fantasy. Violence is this common denominator. It's like this pure the purest expression of his voice. It's the only time his parents would ever really take him seriously or pay attention. And we see that throughout the film. So it's only through the Port Arthur Massacre that our reality, like this reality of the public, momentarily 
it becomes his fantasy. He feels as though he's actively playing a part in our world and he's forcing us to witness and partake in his world. It's all about this, this weird childlike ego. And, um, well, he gets our attention at the end. Yeah, he certainly does. The, the film actually cuts out basically a microsecond before Nitram squeezes the trigger and commits the massacre. That's a decision that I want to unpack with you in a minute. But before we get there, what struck me about the film is that so many elements of Brian's life seem like they were made for a movie, even before we get to that ultimate act of violence. The interactions with the Tattersall's heiress, Helen Harvey, I actually didn't know a lot about it. And when I first heard this movie was going to be made, I guess because I was kind of naive to his family circumstances, his relationship with Harvey, I was not expecting it. And I think what works so well in this movie is the fact that, you know, about 75 to 80% of it is just about the relationships between Nitram, his parents, and Harvey. And the performances are so vital to that. Everyone in this movie turns it up to 10. Judy Davis, Anthony LaPaglia, and the movie hinges on you understanding what motivates Nitram to do these different things when these key figures in his life either connect with him or then when they disappear, you know? So we talk about his parents. He's always closer to his dad than his mum. His dad seems to be more sympathetic and supporting. So you see what happens when when he loses him. And then, like you said, Essie Davis's character, the heiress, she's the only one that sort of treats him like an equal, essentially, and 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 you know, backs his his ideas to do. We think introduces him to the world of the creative arts, and you see the impact that the loss of that has on him. What do you think about the decision to focus it so heavily on his relationships with those people? Uh, I think it sets the field for these expectations, like that I was kind of alluding to earlier, like Anthony Lapalia can't fulfill his role as a father. He's this broken man who relies on his wife, Judy Davis, to keep the family together. She kind of subverts this mid-90s trope of the passive working-class housewife by being quiet and, like, unnervingly in control in an environment where you have all of these unstable, childlike men. She's, like, the only adult in the room. And um, there's that beautiful moment when the psych asks her... Yeah, Carlene, how are you coping with all of this? Are you, you going all right? I'm fine. Yeah. Just remember, you can come and see me as well to talk about things. <laughs> no, I'm good. And she's just like, I'll be all right. She gets on with it, you know. She's, she knows what she needs to do to keep this thing together. And when she loses her husband and her son loses Essie Davis's character, she's the only staunch one and she remains kind of resilient, not for her sake, but for everyone's sake. Again, there's that moment with the psychiatrist where he, he asks something like, who are these pills for, I like, that Martin's taking? Who are they good for? Are they good for you or are they good for him? And she says, they're good for everyone. You know, I feel like the women in the in this film have the most agency and they do their best to define the borders for these men who struggle to keep it together and fulfil the roles society has kind of imposed on them. And, of course, those those roles are all shallow and meaningless, particularly in the face of, of tough or extraordinary situation. But, but, but I think that point's important 
in the context of Cazelle's Australian films, this kind of trilogy beginning with Snowtown that goes to true history of the Kelly gang and, and it's kind of challenging or reckoning with this idea of Australian masculinity. You know, in Snowtown you have these men who riddle their intentions, their intentions being stealing money, you know, and gaslight each other as they commit all these murders and stuff, bodies in barrels or whatever, in honour of their conception of manhood by cleansing the neighbourhood of anyone who shows signs of whatever the suburban antithesis of being a man is, you know. Then in true history of the Kelly gang, you have the celebration of Ned Kelly's bastardised mythology that Aussie masculinity kind of prides itself on, the hard luck story of the oppressed anti-authoritarian like outlaw who assumes this David and Goliath complex to just justify being a criminal, right? And I think the problem this film raises and explores, which is what I loved about it, is that if it is the final chapter of this idea, it toys with the indices of um, masculinity, if his trilogy is about masculinity, and suggests that, you know, they shouldn't be gendered. And to me, subjectively, in my mind, the idea of so-called masculinity, its essence has something to do with responsibility. And the women in this film are by far the most responsible. And the film raises these questions of, like, who is going to take responsibility for this child, for this problem and for this crime? Of course, we should collectively share responsibility, but society has always sought to assign responsibility as a way of deferring culpability, like it's top down. And the elephant in the room is the fact that Martin Bryant, you know, we know when we watch this film, he pled guilty. But does that mean he accepted responsibility? Hmm. I mean, sure, if it makes you sleep at night, but I don't believe he was intellectually capable of the notion and the cruel irony, and it's no secret that his mother still carries the burden of that shame and responsibility today in Tasmania. I felt at the time that because I'm Martin's mother, I was being held accountable in some way for all these crimes. When you think about that in the context of the film, it makes it a really kind of complex study of what masculinity means as well as, you know, the crime. Yeah, and I love the way that you've put it in the context of Cozell and Grant's earlier work. Grant wrote both Snowtown and True History of the Kelly Gang. I think you're spot on about what they're exploring, but I think in terms of responsibility and culpability, I think the extra dimension in this movie, and I think it was also there in True History of the Kelly Gang, is the state or the community writ large. Exactly. It's not obvious throughout this movie that it's going to be as polemic as it is about gun laws, but then in the last, I think, act, it does all kind of come together in a way. And then it's it makes you grapple with, yeah, individual responsibility, ideas of masculinity, ideas of culpability, but then basically the point is these things exist. These people exist in society. What you can control for is how easily are they able to access the tools on which to wreak enormous amounts of pain on, on a lot of innocent people. And to me, there is one particular scene which I think shifts the movie's focus, and it is the scene in which Bryant goes to a gun shop in Tasmania to buy his arsenal. And you know throughout this movie that 
this movie is going to end with something terrible because that's history. It's something that happened 25 years ago. We all know about it. But there's something about the nonchalant way in which that whole interaction occurs. And you can see this, but the person selling him the guns can't see it. And it was interesting talking to Cazell and Grant. They thought this was the most important scene in the movie as well because it is – Really? Yeah, it is they wanted people to reckon with the fact that these people exist – and it's these other people who can enable them to do the worst possible things. I mean, I found it powerful. I, I, I wonder whether or not you, whether you felt similarly about it or you have different thoughts. I mean, I, I, it wasn't the most powerful scene to me, but I think the scene definitely, when I watched it, it like embodied whatever a wink and a handshake means, you know, except that it's a boy in a candy shop but he's not buying lollies, he's buying an AR-15 shotguns and a bag full of ammo, you know. I think it gets to the bone of this question, that thing is of whether guns kill people or people kill people, right? Totally. Um, And that scene is the tipping point of that question. But even when I'm thinking about that quote, you know, um, uh, Lincoln freed all men, Samuel Colt made them equal. Yeah. You know, highlights the racist roots of gun control. But another thing about that scene, at the end of the day, really, it's all about money. The bloke sees a bag full of cash and he thinks, I'm going to sell him as much as I can. The repercussions are secondary because sadly, that's the world we live in. Money is the trump card. But of course, Martin Bryant didn't get that. He inherits this fortune after his girlfriend Helen dies and it still failed him. He couldn't really get what he wanted with money. That's often what happens with money, you know, especially when you haven't earned it. It's meaningless. And it just created another pretend world with all these pretend people. Yeah, for sure. And I think that to me is when I said all came together, it's because you realize that what the movie is explaining is it's eschewing the simple narrative of insanity or, you know, even as the dichotomy that you framed is, you know, do guns kill people? Do people kill people? It says you can't answer that question in a binary way. Martin Bryant got to this point because of who he was, the circumstances around him, the fact that he had this bizarre relationship with with this heiress who left him all this money. And, and that meets, uh, you know, relaxed gun laws at the time and, and combines to do that. Mm. There's two really interesting creative choices that the film's creators made. One was to refer to Bryant as Nitram throughout the movie. The other was the decision to not show the actual massacre. Uh, It occurs off camera at the very end of the movie. This title card that splashes up and explains to the audience the consequences of what happened. And I've got to say, that's a pretty significant decision, and it's one that I don't think I agree with. I mean, obviously, the filmmakers are entitled to tell the story however they want, but let me explain to you why I think I felt uncomfortable with that decision. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other interesting thing here is that Cazell has said that he wouldn't have made this movie if it included the massacre in it. He did not want to shoot that. And Grant did not want to write that. Right. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. My discomfort for it comes from the fact that this is not a movie that sets out to make the audience sympathize with. Bryant. That's not, I don't think, an explicit goal of this movie is for you to walk away and feel sorry for Bryant. No. No, and I don't think you would. No. However, when you choose to tell a story about someone, when you choose to tell it from their perspective, when you show the hardship that they struggle, and there's all sorts of layers of hardship we see Brian struggle with. We see him 
just failed to connect with people his own age. We see loss in his life. And so even though I don't think I left this movie, you know, weeping for Bryant or anything like that, I don't think audiences will, there is Mm -mm. some moments, quite a few moments, in which you do empathise with him to an extent. The moment in which his ultimate horror is revealed, well, would be revealed, is absent from the movie. And I, when I, when I finished this movie, I went and read um, a few articles about actually what happened at the massacre, and it was far more, I guess, both graphic and calculated than I think the movie leaves you thinking it will be. The way that he chased down some women and children and deliberately executed them. It's very chilling, right? And I understand that that's very intense and that would change the focus of the movie. But I think without seeing that, without actually seeing this person in their most distilled, pure and horrific form doing something like that, the movie felt a little bit unbalanced to me. Really? Okay. Yeah. And and when I asked Cozell and Grant about it, their response was, well, it's a well-known tragedy. We have laid out that he has done bad things. He's becoming increasingly violent. We do show the title card that says that 35 people died. But there was still a part of me that thought saying that 35 people died and showing this character who we've come to understand and I, I'm just wanting to be very careful about this because I'm not trying to suggest that Cozell and Grant want us to sympathise with him, yeah. but we do understand him, right? I think that's a significant thing. Is and there a problem we, with that? I don't think there's a problem with that except when you don't show the horrific thing that he did. I think that's mm. my problem with it. Um, but I'm interested in your view. What's interesting about the decision not to show the actual violence for this is that Firstly, the point of the film is that it's not about the massacre, it's about the person. With that aside, um, I think it's more powerful having the violence out of frame. I mean, we've known that since the shower scene in Hitchcock's Psycho, right? Hmm. Of course, the the violence in our heads of our imagination is always more terrifying than the banal kind of horror of real violence. I remember, like, even the first fight I ever witnessed, it was sloppy as, <laughs> you know. It's like people wildly swinging like a slapstick rehearsal, like the whole thing's over in, in seconds. It's really, like, unimpressive in light of the violence I was anticipating, this exaggerated, explosive Jean-Claude Van Damme thing where it's, like, full of heroism and acrobats and vengeance. But, um, you know, when I got older, I put myself in situations where I saw real violence, real violence is is what we're talking about here. It's it's very sad and shocking. You know, it's hard to explain the sounds of bones breaking, people falling unconscious, people don't realise they've been stabbed, uh, blood, you know, that feels like it's going to run forever. Um, people just walk by and mind their own business. Of course, no one wants to make it their business. I think that's what makes real violence so unimaginable and terrifying when it happens. It's so ordinary. Um, but But even then, like, can you imagine a man walking into a cafe and murdering six people in 10 seconds or however long it took him, you know, before you've had a chance to even fucking scream or breathe. There's just these these slumped bodies shivering and then they're dead. I mean, do, do, do we need to see that? No, why, would we, why would we need to? Like, I don't know what Kozel achieves by showing two children being shot in the face. Like, I don't get it. But we know about the horror of Port Arthur. It riddles every scene. Every moment of the film is reflected by that final act in our subconscious. And I think artfully filmmakers have matured out of that gory, gratuitous representation of violence. So when a director makes that decision, it's like a Tarantino thing. It's aware of how stylized it's become. But I know, 
I also know what you, you're kind of uh, might be alluding to, and it's this thing about maybe respect for the victims. Well, it's, it's not necessarily that because I do think there was a, there's a really deliberate choice at the end of the movie in which before any guns are made apparent, we do see shots of the victims. And I think that is a very mm. deliberate and a very smart choice to not pretend that these weren't real people yeah. with faces and lives that were impacted. I think I think that was necessary and, and very well done. I guess there's t- two points in response to what, you're saying is you're saying that this is not a movie about the massacre. It's about understanding what led up to it, understanding the person who perpetrated it. And I think that's absolutely what this movie is. But I also think that there's something specific about this act and this kind of act that is different to a generic fight scene or a generic action scene in a movie or even your point that I largely agree with, which is that violence in your mind can't really live up to any violence that, you know, we could create through art. But I think the exception to that is when someone in a calculated way using a shotgun and a assault rifle kills people aged from three up to their 70s and does it over an, a long period of time. And I think if we're saying that this movie is about trying to understand that person, showing the way in which they perpetrated one of the most horrific massacres in modern history in the West seems to be an important part of that story and their life. And I guess it comes down to how much you know about, like if you know these details of Port Arthur and what happens, and probably most Australians do, or a lot of Australians do, then it's not necessary. But I also think that's kind of a cop-out. Like if you're choosing to tell a particular story, I don't think you can really get away with saying, oh, there's bits of this story that everyone knows already, so I don't need to show but, it. Because I think a mean, lot of people okay, that don't know it, that. It's, it's not really that because you do see him go into buildings and fire a weapon. You just don't see the people dying. Hmm. I mean, for me, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of that thing that I try to tackle with some of my crime writing. Like we colour these people by the crime because it's the easiest way to tell someone's story. You can make sense of a whole person through that final act, that final decision, that final episode, mistake, whatever you want to call it. The decision or the moment is shaped really by everything else in a person's experience, the nurture and the nature up until that moment. Um, The decision is tangled in a lifetime of moments, feelings, and and sometimes traumas. So it's easy to just see that final thing and be like, oh, everything that came before this is meaningless in the face of this gesture and we can point fingers and yell loony. But it's, it's very difficult to be left with just that because up until now, everything you know about this massacre has just been the massacre, right? Like I didn't know about the Tats mm, Lotto arrest. Yeah. yeah, neither. Yeah. And I think it's 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 really, really difficult to understand a human being. I mean, really get to know a human being. Like I find the longer I like the longer I interview anyone, the mm. more complicated they become. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah. feel like up until this point we've just known about the massacre and we know if, like we know the minutia of the massacre, but we do. I was going to say, because I think yeah. hearing you say this and realising that I don't actually disagree with the points you're making, but maybe what I'm reacting to is in in isolation, this movie and Kurzel's other movies, it's perfectly fine decision and it's a good movie. It's a very good movie. It captures this well and I think the balance of the movie would have shifted quite significantly if it ended in a very gory, bloody scene, right? A lot of the Mm. other points of the movie would not, I don't think, have landed or stuck with you as well. And I think that's fine. I think maybe my 
pushback to this comes from something that I've been grappling with really since the massacre in Christchurch in 2019. And this question of when someone perpetrates a horrific crime like this, who doesn't look or come from the kind of background that we've been told perpetrators of these crimes look like, our unwillingness to recognise the heinousness of it. And that might sound silly because I don't think anyone is pretending that Martin Bryant is a good guy. But I still think in the last two decades, the amount of art that's been created about people who look like us Mm. doing terrible things to white people who are innocent versus the amount of times we actually see someone who looks like your average Aussie white guy. I think it's significant that the perpetrators of two of the worst massacres ever are both white Australian men, yet that is not the kind of thing that we are presented with in art. As often, does that make sense? I agree. You know, when when Muslim commit, Muslims commit these equally horrific crimes, um, they're not critically analysed in the same way. It's kind of like um, they inherently had had a like. There's no there's no effort to understand them in in the way that there is maybe with guys like the Christchurch killer and um, and Martin Bryant. But but do, but then again, like as even as I'm saying that, do you think there was ever really an effort to understand Martin Bryant? I don't think Justin Cazell should have made a different movie. I think Cazell and Grant have a particular focus and thematic presence throughout their work, and you were talking about that. It's it's Australian masculinity, and I think they are very good at telling those mm-hmm. stories. So I just want to – the reason why I'm, I'm prefacing what I'm saying about that is my, my next point is about – I guess, art and cinema and the Australian industry more broadly rather than wanting Cazell and Grant to not do this or to do that. But it has got me thinking about what the reaction to this movie, to the idea of a movie like this would be if the perpetrator wasn't Martin Bryant, but it was, say, the shooter behind the Lint Cafe siege in Sydney. And my instinct is that that movie would not get a cent of funding from, you know, the groups that funded this, like the Melbourne International Film Festival Fund or or Australian production companies. And then it got me thinking, like, do I want those movies? Do I want a movie about – it's the 20th anniversary of, of 9-11 this year. Mm. As far as I'm aware, I've not seen a Western-produced movie or any produced movie about the life – of the people of Bin Laden or Mohammed Atta, the the actual hijackers. And I think, well, if we think it's okay to under... If we're saying that what leads people up to violent acts like this is a combination of different factors and it's worthy of interrogation in this area, it should totally be worthy of interrogation in another area. Mm. That's, That's the universal position that we're holding. But my instinct is that we are probably very, very far away from seeing movies like that made or at least movies like that made without enormous pushback. What do you think? I think it's interesting because you kind of imply that the political backlash will be enough to stop these institutions from, you know, telling these stories. But I think Screen Australia would fund it. I kind mm. of, I think it depends on who tells the story and, and mm. how it's told. Um, this film was in the hands of... Pretty like one our best filmmaker, pretty much, mm, mm. Um, who was flexing within the psychological texture and that pastel sort of nightmare of suburbia that he gets best. Um, from my personal experience working within the film industry, like a year ago with respected executive producers on similar issues, uh, there was an openness to to really dangerous and difficult ideas. 
but, you know, the films haven't been made, so we don't know what that political pushback might have been. But the notes were always about story and whether it feels true and whether it is true. And I think the truth is what gets these films made as long as you can support it that you're accurate in, mm. in the way that you're representing these people. I think there's no reason why there would be pushback. But, you know, you're right. On the surface, the problem with the Muslim thing is that it undermines the government's posturing about the war on terror and exposes these difficult issues they probably don't want the public, the greater public or, or the quiet Australians or whatever knowing about. Well, exactly. Which is namely, namely that the reason kids were radicalised here was because Australia was involved in wars. We had no real reason to be in outside of this acquiescence to US foreign policy. But I think there is an openness to these ideas from parts of our film institutions. Um, the sad part is that the pushback doesn't really come from the institution. In, in this case, it came from film critics who were bashing a mm. film before they'd even seen it. Mm. Uh, and it came from politicians. Like, uh, I mean, that, mm. that should make us all paranoid when, when politicians are telling us. I mean, we've talk, talked about this with One Four and things like that. That, that when politicians start interfering with the voices of particular sections of the community. Well, that, I'm glad you brought that up because I'd actually been thinking about that in the context of this conversation is that even when people from the kinds of backgrounds that aren't already you know heavily portrayed in Australian media try to tell their stories, whether they're true or fictionalised, they already are getting shut down by police mm. and by politicians. And that's maybe where some of my pessimism comes from. I think you're spot on that the reaction to it, what we're preempting is the fact that telling stories that say that young Muslim men who are radicalized and maybe the link, I mean, the Link Cafe Siege thing was a bit of a red herring. Like, I don't really think anyone, I'm not trying to say I want to make a movie about that guy. But I think there's bigger question of young Muslim men who are, who are radicalised. You're right. And in fleshy- his case, you know, how radicalised are they? Yeah, exactly, exactly. He didn't even know what the ISIS flag was, for example. Yeah, but, yeah. but telling those stories and understanding the complex social, economic, political you know, all these factors that lead people to commit these acts pushes against a narrative that the most powerful people in Australia have been shoving down our throats since the war on terror. I think what's interesting to compare that to NITRAM is that as much as this movie's become controversial, it's not really that radical. It's saying that gun laws are important to stop people who, through circumstances outside of our control, might do something bad. That's, by and large, a popular position amongst the Australian public and amongst uh, politicians. So it's very important and good to have that laid out. And the movie makes the point that Australia has, in some instances, wound back its gun control laws since 1996. I left the film anxious, especially when I read that final title card about there being more guns in Australia now than there Mm. was back then. And then, again, when I read Flanagan's piece that says um, the same liberal government that was trying to stop the film had made a secret deal with a firearms consultation group Mm. to ease gun control laws. Mm. Mm. You know, I left more scared. I left shocked. Well, and the statistic that Australians have more guns now than they did before the, the gun buyback. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think it's a good intervention in that way. I just don't think that... I think in terms of the public understanding, I think we have seen politicians do these kinds of deals, but I think the surveys show that Australians overwhelmingly support 
gun control. And I think yeah. if this movie jolts them into realizing that they need to pay more attention, that's a good thing. I think、mm. that's very different to where Australians are in understanding why the son of Lebanese migrants or Pakistani migrants or Bangladeshi migrants might want to go and fight in the Syrian civil war, for example. Yeah. You know, you can.、Um Reel them in when you tell them about all the national security laws that that they pass in the name of this stuff. True.、Um, are we are、uh, we pitching a movie idea right now? <laughs> I know a lot of lot of very lot of very、uh, powerful people in Australian media listen to this podcast.、So、give us a call. Hit me up in the DMs.、Um, yeah, I think that's a it's actually a really great spot to leave the conversation, Mahmoud, and a really really fascinating one. I love when we can start talking about a specific movie about a specific event and a specific point in time, and bring it. To what we currently, as Australia, are grappling with, and also get in a Western Sydney hip hop reference as well. <laughs>、um, thanks so much for your time and, and your thoughts on this movie. Really appreciate it. A pleasure, man. Thank you so much for for having me on. Happy to talk to you anytime, brother. After the break, you can hear my interview with Nitram's director Justin Kozel and writer Sean Grant about why they made this film and what they're hoping audiences take away from it. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back, embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer, and rabble rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy, The Gospel According to Paul, is returning to the Opera House. On from the fourth to twenty-third of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro therapy. Yeah, yeah, if that's no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Justin, Sean, thanks for your time. Thanks, Justin. Pleasure. So, Sean and Justin, you guys have both collaborated on a number of projects together in the past, including Snowtown, and most recently, the True History of the Kelly Gang. Sean, what was the genesis of Nit Ram, and, and when did you decide that you wanted to embark on this project with Justin again?、Uh, well, I mean, the, yeah, it's, it's to try to put a finger on the genesis. It's kind of tricky, but I, you know, I mean, I like anyone of a certain age. I remember where I was the day of the events, and it was a seismic. Moment in our history, and it, and it stayed with me from then, and then and then it sort of tracks along over a ten year journey. Yeah, Justin and I work together now. I think we realised about a decade or so. And、um, after our first film together, Snowtown, I remember we'd enjoyed the experience of working together, and and he he was like, we should try to do this again sometime. Is there anything else in your head? And I had a few different stories, but there was something about Port Arthur that intrigued me. But I just said、uh, I, I didn't have the answers as to why or how, and it really comes back to sort of in 2018. I'd spent the past six years living in Los Angeles, and、uh, where you know the mass shootings are all too frequent. And、um, yeah, in, in the space of a certain amount of time, there was a, an, an incident where in my local grocery store. 
uh, a gunman had run in and started shooting and my wife, my partner at the time, was um, supposed to go shopping and got called into work and, you know, that sliding doors moment. So it makes you think about it. And then late October, early November, within 10 days, there was a mass shooting in Pittsburgh and there was another in Thousand Oaks, which is just outside sort of LA. So, you know, and every time that happens, quite often the news broadcasters or the late night hosts will bring up Port Arthur. Like it's just a regular occurrence of Australia did this. And I think in the space of, you know, 12 days from the event to when we changed gun laws, you saw the best and the worst of our nation. You know, you, you saw absolute evil. And then you saw, you know, what I refer to as the proudest moment I had as an Australian, including any, you know, America's Cup victory or, you know, football victory or anything like that. Nothing compares to what we managed to achieve. So there was something fundamental in it. And it wasn't until in that period in 2018 I was quite overwhelmed by it, living in it in America for so long. It was kind of like, and, you know, as a writer, there's only one thing I can do. So I sat down and I wrote and I wrote and I never told Justin I was writing it. I just had a period, strangely enough, was sort of over a Christmas period and I just went to work and I'd kind of researched things and then I picked up over the years and I'd picked up my research and, and in that picking it up, I discovered that, you know, the National Firearms Agreement that came into place 12 days after the events, not only had not all of it been implemented, but some of it had been pulled away. And that terrified me because I'd always gone, well, we did this and look how great our nation is. So it's a bittersweet thing where, yes, I'm proud, but also let's not forget, guys. So that's when I kind of knew the why it had to be told and, and why now. Yeah, so I kind of wrote it in this sort of fever dream sort of experience of just putting it down on paper. And then I texted Jazz or I yeah, I think I texted him and just said, check your inbox. And it was, you know, we had never discussed it for 10 years, never. other, And, and even that first discussion was such a very, very like one sentence brief one. And he, yeah, he clicked on his inbox. And, hmm. and Justin, when you, when you saw that from Sean, did it make you think about what you felt when you heard about the massacre and the, the political debate that sort of followed? Uh, no, the first thing I, I was terrified. The first thing I, I thought when I saw it, because I, I mean, I lived down in Tasmania and I have for the last four years and we decided to, you know, I've been coming back and forth for 25 years, actually probably four weeks before Port Arthur happened. I, I met my now wife, Essie Davis, who's in the film. So it was pretty powerful. I, I, I experienced what was going on. I'd never been to Tasmania back in 96 uh, before. So I was experiencing it through her horror and, um, you know, this place that she would sort of say is this peaceful, beautiful, amazing, wild, incredible kind of haven. It, it, you know, suddenly at the time it was the, the, the worst single mass shooting that had happened ever. So it was seismic, you know, and, and, and I guess when I read Sean's script, you know, living down here and feeling over the years the difficulty and the challenges for people to talk about it, yeah, I was pretty terrified because usually when Sean sends me, some, me something, it's good. And so, you know, I, I was kind of um, very apprehensive about it, but I, I had my kind of radar really, uh, really sensitively kind of tuned to kind of what I, what I was hoping it wasn't. Um, and, and then I started reading this sort of character and this sort of journey and this family and things started to feel quite recognisable and familiar and he just very, very cleverly outlined 
the dismantling and the unhinging of this individual and, you know, that you sort of, I sort of got to know through the screenplay and, and, and just at that moment that they're the most dangerous, just at that moment that they are starting to make the worst choices and they're the most isolated. Sean writes this sort of incredible scene in this gun shop where Nit Ram walks in with a bag full of money and is able to buy two weapons that, you know, you would see on a military field without a gun licence, like he was buying fishing rods. And there was something about being so intimate with the character and sort of really sort of understanding the pretty downhill evolution of that character and, and, and just at that moment that you probably fear them the most, the absurdity of a kind of, you know, gun culture starting to embrace and facilitate him being able to uh, buy these weapons was was quite shocking to me. You know, we're both really passionate about gun reform and, and I've lived in America as well and can sort of understand and see that it is almost an everyday occurrence there. So there, w- there was something about this that spoke to me in a way about gun reform that I'd never sort of experienced before and I kind of knew I had to do it but I knew that by doing it it was, um, you know, it was going to be tough. Yeah, that scene in the gun shop, you say, that to me was a real inflection point of the movie where it all kind of came together and there was almost something about the banality of it and the the kind of Australianness of it that felt so understated and that's why it was so powerful. But, you know, there's a lot of ways in which you could tell this story and you chose to tell it from uh, Nitram's perspective and really focus on those relationships with his parents and with Helen Harvey, the heiress. I want to ask how you landed on that and how you think the focus on those relationships feeds in to the conversation around why a tragedy like this occurs. Well, you're absolutely right, Osman, in that it took me years to settle on that. I I, I, I started versions and and played with versions that were different, you know, the police point of view, there was the survivor's point of view, victim's point of view. One stage it was, you know, just the 24 hours of because I knew there was something important to tell and it, and it took so long to find out how. And it really was strangely, you know, coming back to that time in 2018 around those massacres, it was a strange moment of chance or fate or whatever you want to call it where I was watching a sports telecast and there were these two former athletes, you know, it was halftime of a basketball match and they're arguing about guns and one of them is debating that I should have, he was saying, I've got the AR-15. I've got the gun that was just used in um, Pittsburgh or Thousand Oaks. And, and he's saying, why can't I? Why can't I do it? Because I'm fine. I'm not going to hurt anyone with it. And it was in that moment, it was the strangest moment that the penny kind of dropped, that that gun shop scene was where the whole film hinged on. I wanted to walk an audience, in particular, in my head, it was this person, and go, I want you to be in the shoes of someone that should not have these weapons and you're going to sit with them for 70 to 80 minutes and then you're going to walk into that shop with them. And hopefully that is the point where you understand where, you know what, I'll find something else to use or I'll find something else to do because this is just too dangerous. Because there are these individuals and there will forever be these individuals. And if there wasn't, the movie wouldn't exist. Like if I didn't pick up my newspaper in LA daily and see these occurrences and when I kept reading about them, the, the similarities between these perpetrators was just astonishing to me. You know, it was anger management issues, trouble at school, isolation, quite often a, a loss or a, an absence of a father figure. You know, it just 
there was these tropes, you know, that, that I just saw and I just went, well, I hadn't seen a, a deep dive investigation into this and, and a portrait of it to try to get some understanding. So that was when I, yeah, it was in that moment. I said, I knew it. It's the best way I could do it. Typically a, an anti-gun film, and, I, and I'm very proudly stated as that, is, you know, you've got a lawyer at the front of a courtroom or you've got a journalist doing something, you know, and they're very much, you know, soapboxy type things. And that doesn't kind of work when I watch art form. Like I needed to understand it. I needed to feel it. Um, so I went, well, actually this, strangely enough, because it's, it made it harder than it would have any other way for this film to get made. Like I knew as soon as I sat down and went, you know, even Snowtown was a corruption of innocence. We had you know, that the John Bunting character, but it was seen through Jamie's eyes. That made it that little bit easier for palatable, I guess, for people. But this was a real challenge and I knew it was, but I also stand firm in the belief that it was the most important way to try to get across my message. So, On that specific scene, I think that you describe it as, you know, being this this turning point, this this significance. Justin, when you're setting out to to shoot something like that, how... What's going through your head? What are the decisions you're making or thinking about when you're trying to capture that moment of, I guess, it all coming together in that gunshot? Yeah, I mean, I hope I don't stuff it up. I mean, it really was more so than any other, more so than any other film. It, it was always the scene, and and it always somehow defined why to make the film. You know, because I think Sean and I went through a lot of, you know, a, a lot of discussions with people about the why. And a person that we'd sort of cast who had experience in gunshots before and knew knew about guns and there was an ease and a comfortableness in which he talked about the guns. Caleb had, you know, it was very, very late on in, in, the, uh, in the filming, so Caleb had sort of really started to establish kind of where he felt he should be. Um, and then you, you just sort of let it go and you, you, you sort of hope that the two of them are able to kind of, you know, find something quite sort of genuine. So a lot of it is you're sort of holding your breath, but you're also hoping that you sort of set it up and you've cast right to, to, to allow, allow it to sort of effortlessly play. And, and it did. I mean, we must have shot it really quickly, one or two takes. They were kind of continuous takes and you kind of know that something's working. There was an ease about it and, and actually the ease about it and how comfortable the two of them were um, made it even more terrifying. So it was, yeah, it was, it was very interesting sort of how that, how that played out. And along the way of the journey, like it's always been that, we've always been questioning, should we do it, should we not? Um, and each time we do, whether it's a reaction from a sales agent or, or someone's read it or a cast member, and it's, you get these little moments of reassurance that, yes, we're doing the right thing, like this is, this is correct. That scene, that moment, seeing those two actors do it, came at just the right time for us to go. It was just that other moment of reassurance. Go, yeah, this is this is why we were doing it. I've got to say too, you know, we shot it chronologically. So probably about week three is is when suddenly we saw the first guns that were brought out by the armourer, you know, that were the guns used. And I've got to say it was palpable on set. The whole mood changed straight away and, you suddenly realise we just don't see them. It really shifted and changed even, I guess, the crew's attitude towards Caleb, you know, who, you know, as an actor is, you know, playing someone who starts to become fascinated and curious and comfortable with with, with guns and that becomes incredibly confronting. So 
it, it was really telling, you know, when when you sort of have a crew on set who's sort of been working away and comfortably working away and then suddenly this bag of guns come out and you go, yeah, we, we don't see them here. It's shocking. And it's shocking when you see it and you go, this guy walked into a gun store and he was able to buy this. This isn't a hunting weapon. The idea of, yeah, walking into a shop, being able to buy an M16, it's like, what are you using that for? You're not you're not shooting deer with a gun like that. Exactly. And, it, and it, it's absurd. It looks absurd. It looks horrific. It is absolutely shocking. And it was fascinating how we were in it and we've been in it and we've been debating it, we've been talking about it, and so has the crew, and we all knew that it was sort of coming, but it never prepared us to actually visually see them and kind of go, this is just, you know, this is just horrific that, that, that someone, you know, in Australia in 1996 was able to buy these in his state of mind, as it is just as horrific that you can walk into gun stores in America and buy them in a, in a similar way now. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you guys a cu- about a couple of the um, the key creative decisions that I think go to the sensitivities around telling a story like this that you are all obviously very in, in touch with. One of those is the decision to refer to the shooter as Nitram. I wonder how early on in the piece you decided to do that and, yeah, just what, what your thought process was when you were weighing that up. Well, it was pretty. It was pretty early on. It was as soon as we discovered um, that that it was a term that was used towards him, um, a somewhat derogatory term. Because uh, I think what interested me were two things. One was that what I spoke about earlier about there being um, such similarities between this character and and all these. You know, and I use the term boys, not men, that that do these sort of things. Um, that I found really interesting. So the, term, the NITRAM name was as much a, an umbrella term, like I could use it. I wanted to be specific, you know, that, that saying that to be universal, you've got to be specific. But specifically about this case, but the similarities were there. So I thought using NITRAM really was useful in that. And the other thing was that um, it was very much the film to me, quite often I'll have a word in my head as I'm writing something and it's every scene's about this. And for this one, it really came down to identity. Uh, you sort of see this protagonist who, you know, he tries surfing, he'll try travel. He'll, he was kind of bouncing in between, trying to find a place and in, and in that way a name, I guess, was really useful. So, yeah, it was... Obviously, there was that element of respect as well, and, and and you know what, but really, it came down to those two things as to why I, I liked using that, um, and then yeah, and then that name was mentioned, and I was like, well, that's that's kind of it. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. One of the other key decisions was to not actually show the massacre at the end. I... I've been thinking about that decision a lot since watching the movie and I'm I, I wanna know 
yeah, again, when you decided to do that, what you think the movie gains or, or loses from that. But there's one kind of particular thing that stuck with me. I'm interested in your views on this one. It's that th- throughout a lot of the film, we kind of do have these moments where we maybe not sympathise, but we empathise with Nitram. We understand the isolation that he's going through, the tough relationships he has. And then at the end, the moment in which his the actual calculated way in which he did kill these people. And you read some of the details and it's extremely horrific and it's extremely focused and chasing children down and shooting that sort of thing. Do you think there's an argument that maybe by not showing that, what the audience sees is kind of more of the empathetic moments minus the cold calculated violence? I mean, I always felt especially after that moment that he buys the guns is that what you're looking at is someone incredibly dangerous, that there's an evolution of a character throughout the film, that the tension is palpable. I think you, you know, I think Sean and I made this for an Australian audience. It's so taboo to talk about this subject. It is a nightmare. It is, it is a story that exists in the shadows. We all know the absolute horror Having said that, though, what I am finding more and more and what's fascinating, we did have it with the crew, is that there are generations that don't, you know, that were born before Port Arthur that are now in their 20s um, and and actually know very, very little and why gun reform happened so significantly in Australia. But, you know, we felt as though that individual on screen was quite clearly dangerous and making the most horrific decisions and that the proximity of those guns suggested a ending that you knew was horrific. So I think we were trusting that. And I, you know, I, I, I also don't think I could have done, made the film, you know, if we were showing the, the, the end and, and nor, nor did I ever expect Sean to kind of write that. Um, in terms of empathy, I, you know, what I found really important about the film was that, you know, and it's a really fine line, especially when you're dealing with characters like this, is that it was about a familiarity. You know, he's that he's that kid that you cross the road. He's that kid that you probably maybe at school bullied a little bit too much. He's that, you know, he's part of that family that lives at the end of the cul-de-sac with a mother who's lived for 25 years picking up their son from suspension, moving him from school to school. What I really found powerful about Sean's script is that I could see that family, you know, and when you recognise, I think that that becomes very important because you then start to relate and then you start to maybe see uh, the steps and the turns and the situations and the complicit, you know, nature of what we may have experienced in, in the past that leads to individuals making these sort of choices and decisions. So. The film does deal with isolation, you know, and it's really interesting. We made this film, you know, during COVID and we're missing it during COVID and, you know, and we we are looking at a character that becomes further and further detached from society and it is, you know, you could really feel it while we were making it that there's something um, very, very dangerous about that when individuals dis- disconnect and when we disconnect from them. It's just, I think, do you need to see it? I totally understand the question, though. It makes sense. But, you know, of the films that have, you know, touched on a similar subject, like Dennis Villeneuve's done a film, Just Van Sant, and when you see, you quite, but I don't know that you get an understanding of the, of the individual. And, and that was my, my point of difference was going, no, I need, it is a character piece, essentially. It, it, it is about this. It is not about the act. 
So it was very, it was very much that. And and I and I clearly remember there was a postscript moment scene that was in the script that we actually filmed. And it was really interesting. Justin and I having discussions on set. He was like, as soon as he had done the act, this individual, it, it, just Justin didn't know how to direct. The actor didn't know how to say the lines. We had completely disconnected from him. That the, any any sense of empathy is completely gone. So it was really an interesting um, experiment in the fact that none of, the film had to end. It had to end. We'd lost any connection we had to that individual. Um, Sean, I know that you've got to bounce in, in two minutes, but just my, my last question, you sort of alluded to this already. When when I was watching this film, you've already said that so much of it was kind of influenced or what you were motivated by was so many other tragedies that happened, particularly in the States when you were living there. There's one particular one that I couldn't get out of my mind, and that was the, the Christchurch massacre. And maybe that's just because of time, but also because like I've done a lot of reporting on the far right, so I've look, investigated the Christchurch shooter quite a bit. And there were so many similarities in terms of the the profile. So many. Yeah. So yeah, basically I was going to ask you is whether or not you were you were conscious of that and how much you think this story is about Port Arthur versus how much of it is about the kinds of men, because it is overwhelmingly men yeah. more generally that do these kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, I, I used the term boys. But yeah, it, it really... Christchurch, I remember I was rewriting the script the day and I had f- finished a day or whatever and I was in LA and the news had come up and I started reading all the same articles you probably were and I was astonished at the similarities. And it was when I'd started it, both of those things happened while I was writing. It was fully the idea that I've always said I'd much prefer a reminder being in a scripted narrative drama than another news report. And sadly, it's taken these ones in New Zealand or in Canada for legislation to change. And I was just hoping that, you know, I think what art does really well is attempt to make sense of the senselessness of of, of situations. And that was what I was attempting to do. And it was just so tragic that these things occurred during that time uh, of the creation of this film. And, um, yeah, but but it was also, you know, like I said earlier, if these things weren't happening, the film wouldn't exist. I wouldn't attempt to write it because I wouldn't feel any need to. But they were just reminders that these these people do exist and they and they will continue to. So how best can we protect our communities? Um, that was really what was at the heart of it. Thank you, Sean and Justin. Really appreciate your time and congrats again on the film. It, it is astonishing and I hope it gets seen by many, many people. Thanks so much for that. Thanks, mate. Cheers. The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoder and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week. <laughs>